0: The following Dharma talk was presented at Common Ground Meditation Center in Minneapolis, Minnesota, as part of the weekly Dharma series. The speaker
1: is Mark Nunberg, guiding teacher at Common Ground. So we've been looking at Ajahn Chah's book. The book is called Food for the Heart. We're on Chapter 21. And, uh, and at the very beginning, the Ajahn Chah says, the Buddha taught that the practice taught the practice as a skillful means for getting rid of conceit. He couldn't do the practice for us. Having heard that teaching, we must teach ourselves, practice for ourselves. The result will arise here, not at the teaching. This is a central point in the Buddhist teachings. Sometimes we talk about in terms of self-reliance or even independence. But being independent doesn't mean we don't need a teacher or teachings or don't need a community to practice with. It just means that the aspiration isn't to be isn't to be dependent on external things. We want to find an understanding or uncover an understanding, and then basically tracing it back. Right now, I mean, just the uh, you know metaphor for an ordinary human being which means all of us most of the time, is so we're, we're literally lost. And because we're lost, like we don't actually know how happiness arises for us or how suffering arises. I mean, we think we know, but if we really knew, we'd be happy all the time and we wouldn't be unhappy at all. And, you know, think about even today, even one day, how many times we pursued something in order to be happy but to de- deliver any lasting happiness. And we do all kinds of things to be happy. So we're sort of floating around. and makes us really easy targets for the uh, marketers because here we are a bunch of people looking to be happy but not knowing much about it. So somebody says to us, buy this, you'll be happy. Come over here, you'll be happy. Well, we'll check it out. You know, we'll, Let's see, maybe they know what they're talking about. We do this with relationships, with different body trips, you know, diets and uh, you know, all kinds of things, so let alone just ordinary possessions or getting rid of things or even attitudes. Like, I'll take on, I read this book and I'm going to take on this attitude in order to be happy. And over and over again, we've been frustrated and even maybe to some degree, some degree felt betrayed by all of these attempts. So the Buddha makes the point very clearly in many different ways that the aspiration is to become independent, be be able to understand the mind, and not just the mind. You know, when we use the word mind, we're really talking about the mind and experience as one thing. You can't really, we can't really separate the mind and experience. Can you do that? It's not easy to do. In a way, it makes it easy to understand the practice. There's really just this one thing, this. There's this. And in a sense, the Buddha saying, we need to deeply own this, like feel responsible for this. And then it really begs the question, well, what can I do about this? Because in a way, normally we feel helpless, like this experience, you know, the way it is now, what I'm seeing, what I'm feeling, my body, what I'm thinking, this seems to just arrive unannounced, and then there doesn't seem like there's anything I can do about it. In a way, that's true, but it misses something that is subtle but essential to understand for the practice. What we can, what, what are we adding right now to this? Well, we're relating to this right now, right? It's being known this moment, this experience is being known, and it really matters how it's being known, through what kind of filter or through what kind of understanding is the present moment being known. And, you know, it makes a huge difference. We know this superficially, we just haven't developed this understanding or this insight that it really matters through what kind of view or filter, we know the moment. When we're in a really bad mood, everything seems bad. Right? Because we're in we're observing or knowing experience through a particular point of view or a particular perspective. When we're happy, everything looks rosy or something. So we don't think about it so much. We don't directly see it because it's uh, subtle. But There isn't much we can do about what's arising, but there is something we can do about how we're relating to what's arising in terms of the body-mind experience. So it begs the question, I mean, the whole point is to do this now. So what's arising now for us, and how is the mind relating? Is the mind, for example, interested in the way that it is now, the body-mind experience? Is the mind impatient? Is the mind greedy, really wanting to get something so we can own it? Like, I'll get this understanding and then it will be mine and nobody can take it away from me. So, is the mind relating to this experience in a way that leads to tightness? Or is our mind, is the mind relating to this moment in a way that leads to release? It's so simple, but we don't get interested in this level or this aspect of our present moment experience it always seems like the mind has more important things to do like worry or plan or wonder who that person is sitting next to us or you know wonder why we came here tonight is it the final forearm tonight i don't know is it Boy, none of you know tomorrow
2: night
1: okay that's why you're here (laughs) So we want to be interested in this very subtle and essential part of practice. Because, of course, we're interested in being free, all of us. Whether we know we are or not, doesn't matter. Every human being is interested in being free. And we're not interested in being bound up or being caught up or being heavy or being tight. I mean, that doesn't mean we don't do things that lead to the heart, the mind, the body being tight. But we don't do it consciously. Nobody consciously tries to get tight. We do a lot of stupid things that lead to tightness, but we do it from a place of distraction or confusion or ignorance, so we don't realize what we're studying in motion. And if we look in a balanced way, we see, then we wouldn't do it. And so, if we want to be free, then we have to practice being free, but it's it's actually not enough to just know that we want to be free and practice being free, we have to cultivate the mind that is subtle so that in our effort, in our intention to practice or to be free and to practice being free, the mind is able to see all the different ways that the mind relates that leads to the opposite, to not being free, to being caught or reactive. Because... It's not enough to even know the practice really well, but if the mind isn't subtle, it just won't help. Even if we have all the right ideas, we've memorized the teachings of the Buddha, and uh, we've thought about them, we really, we could write papers or books about Buddhism. A lot of people have written books about Buddhism. Just, it's amazing, you go to the library or a good bookstore, they still exist, and uh, You just see so many, really, some of them wonderful books on Buddhism. I mean, there's just an amazing collection now, but they don't help unless we have cultivated a mind that is steady enough to translate the teachings into a direct, immediate way of um, awakening. I mean, the mind is awakening to what's going on. And that awakening, to see clearly the way it is, requires a steady mind. You can't really see the way that it is, how the mind is confused. For example, how the mind is acting out of fear, or how the mind is acting out of a sense of lack. Think about how many moments today our actions, our thoughts, our words came out of a place of lack, feeling like we don't have enough. Nobody loves me enough. Or how many moments today our thoughts, our words, our actions came out of a quality of impatience or irritation or upset of one kind or another. Or just a a flavor of being bored or disconnected or doesn't matter that sort of disconnected, distracted state. All of those moments then would have been causes for more stress, more tension, more unskillful actions, if we had those moments. So the practice, you know, that we do, both in daily life, but especially in sitting practice, because we, in sitting practice, we're creating optimal conditions to develop that steadiness, that sensitivity. You know, when we take our attention... And we make it, it's a very specific, in a sense, willful effort to take the attention and to connect, let's say, with the sensations of the breath coming in. So we're actually feeling the sensations of the air touching the nostrils as they go in, the breath goes in, feel the sensations as the breath touches the nostrils going out. And there's a very specific effort, we call it, vitaka. is the Pali word, Sometimes called connecting, right? The attention is connecting. Oh, that's what's happening right now. The air is touching the nostrils, and it feels like this. I'm hearing a sound, and it's like this. I'm thinking a thought, and it's like this. I'm feeling the ache or the heat or the tension or the burning or the tingling in my knee, and it's like this. So there's the connecting, but that's just the beginning. The real art, then, is to sustain that attention. So, initially, it's kind of a rough landing. With uh, practice and more steadiness, the mind, the attention, comes back to the present moment, and it doesn't make a big, rough landing. But initially, it's like we've been lost in thought, we've been worrying about something, and we recognize we're worrying about it, and we feel guilty that we haven't been practicing, and so we, in a sense, the attention rushes back to the body or to the breath or to whatever meditation object we're working on. And it's like a rough landing. And so even before we're connecting, the roughness of the return is already the seeds for getting distracted. Right? So we're kind of, kind of coming back to the breath, but we very quickly fall into judging ourselves for having been lost in thought or doubting whether we're really with the breath or really wanting to sustain our attention with the breath. But that thought, I really should sustain my attention with the breath, is not sustaining attention with the breath. It's being caught up in thought. But that's okay, because we need that initial, however rough it is, we need that initial effort to connect, to come back to the present moment, to use the body as our anchor, to use the breath here, or the movement of the belly here as our anchor, to use hearing as an anchor. But it's really important for people, even really uh, skilled people, people who've been practicing for a long time, to have an anchor your mind knows how to use. Because even though a lot of the time you are you find it relatively easy to be present, there will be some times when the mind is more distracted or disturbed, and you're really going to need a, a, an anchor you've been training in for years and years and years. Because then the mind will know how to return to the present moment. Even though your best friend has died and the mind is in a real swirl and you can't get your grounding, but if you've been practicing mindfulness of breathing or mindfulness of walking or mindfulness of hearing or mindfulness of the body for 20 years, you'll be able to get some grounding with, your, with the pain of loss. It's not suppressing the pain of loss, it's just restoring a sense of steadiness using your anchor to restore a sense of steadiness, and then from that place of steadiness, you open more widely to what's really happening, which is that pain of loss, or whatever it might be in that moment. Otherwise, the pain is so overwhelming, we want to run from it, we want to control it by defining it in some way, but we don't want to just let it move. And this really leads to the second part of the training. So, The first part is the rough part, where we're taking the attention, wherever, whatever reactive pattern it's involved in, we're recognizing the mind's in a reactive pattern, and we're recognizing in that moment it's not useful or skillful. So because of that recognition, the attention, in a sense, wisdom picks it up and places it, let's say, with the body. That's a common anchor for a lot of us. Oh yeah, sittings like this. The physicality of sitting is like this now. Can this be okay? So we've landed, and now the art of sustaining. But the thing about sustaining, vichara is the Pali word for sustaining. Sustaining attention, that uh, continuity, is a real art, because nothing stays the same, whether it's the body, or thinking, or hearing. It's a movement. It's a flow, Right? So sustaining has a different quality of effort. The effort to connect is a bit rough, you know. We're taking the attention, we're we're sort of, the mind is in a sense pointing to an object and saying, know this. But then the next moment has to, you can't know this because it's already, once you know it, it's already disappearing. You know, whatever moment I feel my knee and that ache in my knee, that burning I feel in my knee, But it's changing, so that, this moment of knowing it is not the next moment of knowing it. So we can get in this staccato thing that doesn't really work very well. It makes the mind tight, like connecting, 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 connecting. Have you ever watched uh, a little waterfall, you know, flowing, flowing? The mind, you see this part of the mind that wants to connect with the waterfall. And it like it's a snapshot. It freezes, but of course, that moment of seeing is already gone. By the time the mind registers it, it's already already something else. And to develop this capacity for a soft gaze, and so instead of actually looking at the waterfall, the mind is knowing the movement of the water, not a picture of the water, but the movement of the water. And it's the same thing whether you're observing the breath, or observing sensation in the body, or observing sound, or observing the movement of thought in the mind. Once you mind, like for example, uh, once we're um, uh, a little bit along with the practice, people aren't aren't encouraged to come right back to the anchor. You might notice your thinking, but you might just be aware of thinking for a few moments. And that's a real step, when we can be aware of thinking without needing to squash the thinking you know, over like that parental energy, no, no, you shouldn't be thinking, but just to allow thought to move in the same way we can allow sensation to move or breath to move or hearing to move. Hearing is a really good training ground for this, by the way, because because the mind isn't in the habit of taking ownership of sound. It's like we have this conception that sound is out there so why bother to try to control it i'm not in control of it so i just let it happen so when we use sound as a mindfulness object like you could do that right now with the sound of my voice and the sound of the blower and people's movement around you and when we're hearing it's easier to sustain like just let the sound roll now it's a little hard when someone's talking because the mind tends to freeze up around the meaning of the words that you're hearing. But when you're hearing more natural sounds, like a waterfall, again, or the rain or the wind blowing or just even the blowing of the furnace fan or just the shuffling like a lot of little sounds but nothing specific, then the mind can get in that sustaining mode where there is a presence, a, a clear, balanced, alert, interested presence, but the mind's not trying to connect. And actually, that's what allows it to sustain this connection. So we talk about the connecting is really useful to start over again. We need that connecting energy, that recognition that the mind is caught, spinning with thought, identified with the thought, recognize that that's stressful, and out of that wise recognition, the mind says, this is how it is now, right? We connect with the anchor, the breath, the body, hearing, thinking as a movement, not the content of thought, but the movement of thought. And then sustaining, like letting go in evenness. Can we just allow that awareness of the breath to sustain? If we try too hard, we'll lose it. If we try to grasp the breath, like I, I want to grab it so that I won't lose it, then we've lost it already. If we get too relaxed, the mind will drift off into thought again, because it's such a deep habit of the mind. So this uh, vichara, that sustaining attention, is a very beautiful art. And you want to practice all day long. So when we formally sit, that's the place where we can really develop this muscle, this skill. But all day long, like in a conversation, to have that sustaining energy where... The effort is nicely balanced. You're not trying too hard to hear what the person's saying. But you're not distracted. You're not too lazy, you know, where your mind is drifting. And then you realize, oh, I haven't been listening to this, but I don't know what they're talking about. <laughs> and you're, you're like, your mind is desperate to sort of catch some stream of where they're at so that you can not be caught, you know, like completely ignorant about what they're saying. Because, you know, at that moment they're going to ask you a question, what do you think about that? (laughs) Well, tell me more. So, and then the interesting thing about sustaining is, it's like we're entering a more natural way of being, right? Because any physicist will tell us that this moment or this reality is defined by movement. The most, you know, obvious characteristic of this is that it's alive with change. It's moving. It can't be fixed. Nothing can be fixed. We can only create the appearance of something being fixed by creating an idea, a concept in the mind that tells us it's this. But see, that's just a thought. Like I'm Mark. That's a concept. I'm Mark. I'm a male. I'm 54, I'm going to be 55 soon. You know, on each one of those, it has the appearance of being true in a fixed sense. But as a thought, it just came and it's gone. Right? And th- what is it that's here that's a man? <laughs> I mean, it's funny. I know what you're thinking, but... <laughs> <laughs> it that. If you look closely, it's like, what is it about that? Do you know what I mean? It's like, what makes a car a car? You know, if we took it all apart, it wouldn't be a car. It's like a convenient designation, mark, or car, or common ground, or whatever. So everything's in flux, is moving, and when we learn to sustain attention, to sort of be present in a continuous way, it means we're realizing or we're trusting. This means we understand it completely, but it means that intuitively we're trusting that everything's moving, that everything's alive with movement, and that's trustworthy, that the heart or the mind can go with that, not resist it, not be dependent on a concept. I'm sitting here watching my breath. That is fixed and tight, but actually being aware of the breath in a continuous way is literally being the movement of light, and that's joyful. So we've gone from the effort to connect, which is very useful, it it sort of breaks us out of our drama, self centered stories, dramas, and the fixations or the contractions that they imply. And so it is a even though it's a real effortful movement from being caught to connecting, it is a step towards freedom. It feels relatively free, even though we have to make that very strong effort to connect. But then once we start to sustain, joy will arise. That will be basically the barometer that we're having some continuity of mindfulness. There will be a feeling of lightness, of aliveness, of ease, and we call that Piti is the poly word, or rapture, or joy, or, it's like, uh, even in a visceral sense, I mean, it's a, it's a quality of mind, but it's also experienced viscerally as a vibration, you know, it's like, conventionally, as we move about the world in a destructive state, we think of the body as being, right, like solid, bone, muscle, blood, and weight, but, When the mind is in a more balanced with a continuity of awareness, that's not the actual experience of the body. The body is just vibration. And vibration isn't a thing. Right? Vibration is a a process of things changing. It isn't fixed. What makes the body seem fixed is our strong idea that we keep, because it's an idea or because it's a natural phenomenon, it also comes and goes, but this particular idea that our body is solid, for example, is an idea that comes and goes with real regularity, and it's very diluting, so diluting that it's not easy to experience the body in an unfixed state, unfixed by our idea of it. You have meditators, you know, in my position as a teacher or in my position as a practitioner, you know, where we go to the teacher or somebody comes to me, and they have this experience of the body, and they wonder what's happening, like being really light, almost like levitating, or like the body disappearing, and they think, you know, what am I doing wrong, or what is this normal, or should this be happening? Basically, they're experiencing the body with some freedom from their concept of the body. The fact is, we don't really know the body outside of the fixation we have on the concept of the body. Psychophysicists like a physicist would tell us this too, you know, they say, you know, well, things are basically just molecules, and the thing that defines molecules is things are moving, right? And then then if you really continue the conversation, that doesn't make you want to walk away from the physicist, and you keep talking to the person, then they start talking about how much space there is between the movement. It's like the the difference between like the things that are actually moving, as they understand it, and the space between those things that are moving, is vast. So it's mostly just empty space. And this starts to sound a lot like Buddhism. You know, that there's movement, and the movement is uh, you know really characterized by a lot of empty space. And this is not just a story that physicists talk to each other about. This is something that is directly experienceable. The mind has this capacity to understand things as they are. It's just that we've got in a very bad habit of being content with our ideas about things. So we haven't cultivated the skill to directly know. And the real art is this, going from, because generally we're all pretty good at connecting. We may not do it very often, but mostly people, once they hear about it, can take their attention and connect. If I said, you know, feel what your hand is touching, feel that contact, whatever your hand is making contact with now, tune into that experience. You can take your attention and you can place it there, so to speak. I mean, that's just a a relatively bad metaphor. Because we're not really doing anything with the attention. It's more like that feeling of contact, like my thumb against my index finger. Where is that happening? It's not like happening there. I don't have to put my attention there. Right? That's just wrong view. That's part of the concept. The whole idea of location, like that this contact is happening here, that's just part of the concept. It's happening here in the mind. Right? It's not happening here, but part of the way the concept operates is it creates this Sort of visual, internal visual sense of location, right? And so we, part of the story is it's over there next to that index finger where you're it, you know? And that's all happening under the sort of level of awareness. But when we just turn it, tune into the contact, so fully, so interested, so fully interested in the contact of the hand or the finger touching something, then all of a sudden, there's no need for words. Actually, words, or any concept whatsoever, just gets in the way of knowing pressure or contact, hardness, whatever it might actually be like now. And just notice how little effort, just the refined effort that's necessary to sustain attention with contact pressure and notice the joy that comes from this simple continuous knowing of contact of course, you can let go of that and appreciating with humility how many times the thinking mind, the habit of thinking, like wanting to think about whether this is a useful exercise or this is a little weird or whatever, how that wants to intervene, wants to, in a sense, grab the attention back to the mental proliferation, as if, like, don't do that, it's stupid, you know? Well, why? And this is what I meant, you know, about getting interested in the mind. We need to get interested in the mind so we really understand that capacity to connect, understand and develop the art of sustaining, begin to um, refine and distill the experience of joy, the lightness and the ease that comes from the sustaining of mindful awareness, And it's that ease then that transforms slowly at times and sometimes suddenly into peace, real peace. A peace that will stand out like, almost sometimes like you've been hit by a truck. Because it's so surprising how much peace, how much ease is available to the mind. And what's so surprising is, it isn't about what was done, it's about what's not being done. That peace arises because of the simplicity of the mind. It has put down, because of the sustaining of attention and the joy that arises, the joy makes the neurotic mind feel content. The mind is always trying to do something in order to be happy. Well, now it's feeling happy. So what does it do with its neurotic need to do something to be happy? It's It's temporarily extinguished. It doesn't feel neurotically like it has to do something to be happy because it's feeling happy. It's feeling light. It's feeling free of its neurotic efforts to do something to be happy. I know, it's like a circle there, isn't it? But because we've given ourselves so much to the present moment and sustaining, then all of that other stuff has dropped away, has fallen into the background. And that's a very light and easeful feeling. And that light and easeful feeling further supports the mind by just sustaining attention. And eventually it develops enough momentum that the mind begins to feel feel a deeper sense of peace and stillness, tranquility. And of course, this is the mind that can see things that it hasn't seen before and I mentioned this early, what makes us blind to deeper understanding, deeper insights, is that our mind is just so superficial. And it's superficial because it's constantly experiencing something and then reacting to it. So it's never sustaining attention. Never, you know, the, the truth, you know, in that, that really organic, direct sense, the truth of our life the truth of experience depends on sustaining attention without interruption because what really informs the mind what's happening is how this interdependent changing process is interdependently changing so we actually have to see it unfolding in order to understand what's going on here a snapshot won't do we have to see how it's unfolding, and then we begin to see how the mind is affecting what's being known. It's like, um, you know, if you have a car, and uh, you want to see like what different types of fuel do to it. You pour water in the gas tank, or you pour, you know, diesel into a gasoline car, and then you have to run it. It's not enough just to pour it in. You have to sort of set it in motion. And it's the same thing. Anything we want to understand, we have to observe it over time. If you want to learn about another animal, you watch it continuously for a long time. And then you see everything you need to see. And it's the same with the mind, the same with this experience. We have to sustain that. And then out of that balanced, clear, easeful attention we start having really profound insights about the nature of the mind, the nature of how it is that the mind gets bound up in suffering states, and how the mind gets transformed into really light, loving, wise states, and how we lose the wisdom, fall into suffering and greed and aversion, and how we can go beyond or abandon the greed and aversion and return to lighter, freer, more loving, more wise states, the more we see these ups and downs. See, then we don't need to worry about falling into a really contracted state because we just cultivate a continuity of awareness. So when you're going to hell and getting angry or getting upset, the most important thing is to be mindful of it so that you learn what that is what that is like, what that leads to. And when you're going into a really pleasant place, a really loving, kind, generous place, don't try to hold on to it. Understand it. Have that continuity of awareness, because that's what will transfer the mind. Grasping the pleasant states and hating the unpleasant states, that doesn't uh, transform the mind. It just reinforces the basic problem. But being mindfully aware when the mind is skillful and beautiful and free being mindfully aware in a continuous way, that will change your life. And when you're going through a really hellish, negative, reactive time, and you're mindfully aware, that also will transform your life in a very powerful way. There is no way to experience your mind being really unskillful without learning from it. I mean, that's how things change is we have to see. And sometimes seeing things is really painful, but that doesn't mean it isn't transforming. Sometimes that's how we change, is seeing things in a way that's very painful, but really wonderful to see. I'll leave it here, so we have a good 15 minutes tonight. It would be nice to hear questions about your sitting practice, if you have any, questions about the talk tonight, Or experiences from your own practice that seem relevant to this topic that you'd like to share with the group. And if you do speak up, it's always nice to say your name and speak loudly enough so everyone can hear you. And if you can't hear a question, ask
2: me and I'll repeat it. Yeah?
0: Do you have any
1: recommendation whether you know as you, you talk kind of you were type on that sort of jarring jumping back? Yeah, yeah. Is it better to just just to just be mindful with whatever you're doing directed with or with? I mean do you have any recommendations? Yeah, well I'll talk about it a little bit. I mean there's there's like I mentioned early on, you you're you're kind of on your own. I mean I'll give you some some ideas, but you're going to actually have to, through trial and error, figure out where that right balance is, even within one sit, let alone day by day, week by week, year by year in your practice, because there's no right answer to your question. And what's interesting, Mike, is that your question shows that you're starting to have insight, like uh, that somehow you're recognizing that the way you were coming back to the breath, although technically correct, you know, given some instructions, wasn't feeling skillful, right, that maybe it was jarring, or maybe there was some fear, like afraid to be in thought. Now, we don't want to cultivate fear. So even though you're coming back to the breath, but there it is, the mind is reinforcing fear or judgment. So one way to, to sort of understand the instructions is have an anchor, uh, know that the mind can return to the anchor, know that when nothing is strongly predominant, that you can train with sustaining attention with the anchor because, by definition, the anchor is something our mind is okay with, at least. And even maybe more, it likes to pay attention to it. Like, over time, if you work with your breath long enough, the mind will really like to pay attention to it because it will remember a lot of nice times it's had with the breath. Really. Like I was talking about, you know, you get into states of joy and calm, and then the mind likes going to breath. Just like we like to go, some people like to go to the bar or some people like to go to the amusement park. Meditators who've been practicing regularly like to bring their attention to the breath. I mean, I could be out in a busy day and if I just connect with my breath for a few, you know, 15, 20 seconds, I feel a palatable joy because I've done it so many times. It's like I can sort of refresh my mind with attention to the breath. But, we don't want to be attached to that i mean it's a relatively wholesome attachment but at some point uh if that whatever that distraction is keeps interrupting the attention to the breath then at some point just allow wisdom to say okay what is this that's asking for attention what is this so you're with the breath you're with the breath you know getting pulled away coming back with the breath with the breath getting pulled away coming back And then just naturally wisdom, and it sounds like this is what's happening, because wisdom itself is an impersonal thing. It's not like Mike's doing the wisdom. It's just that intention, like, well, what is this? just arises in the mind. And then just follow that intention. Okay, so the attention turns toward the mind itself, the content. And Now, the trick is thoughts are very seductive. It's not easy to be mindful of thought without being seduced by the content of the thought. So, that's why you might want uh, to have a phrase available. This is just thinking being known. Just the thought being known. Can this be okay? Or, like you, you suggested, ask a question. Like, is there greed in the mind? So, in a sense, you're looking at the thought, or you're looking at the mind in the moment after the thought, right? Because the thought's already gone away. And you're looking, you're looking at any trace that's been left behind. And in a way, you taste. Is that greed, or is that aversion, or is there some kind of distracted, distractedness or denial? Like, what is the flavor, or what is the shape of the mind having just thought that thought? And you can also be like a cat observing a mouse hole, just sort of patiently waiting to see if that thought comes back. So in a way, then your mindfulness object is the space of the mind. And it's not easy. This is subtle, right? So it's easy after a few moments to drift into thought. Like you're looking there, but the moss comes from over here. And then before you know it, you're lost in that thought. And you you thought you, you were the cat waiting for the thought to come, but it did come. So it takes a little time. Actually, the best way to be aware of thought is to develop a proper relationship with your anchor. Like you're with the breath or you're with the experience of the body sitting, but you're holding it lightly, like you're sustaining attention. Because if you're if you're trying too hard to be with the breath, you're not going to sustain attention. So, like ultimately, mindfulness of breathing or whatever your meditation object is is a very inclusive awareness. So the breath may be in a sense in the forefront. You know, you're feeling the belly expand or contract, or you're feeling the nostrils and the air touching, and that's in a sense right here. That there's nothing blocking the rest of the experience of hearing and seeing and sensations being felt and thoughts being known. So all of that is still right here, because when we're mindful, we're mindful of the mind, and everything's happening in the mind. So it's not an exclusive attention. So you could continue with the breath, but not be afraid to also notice the thoughts that are there, repeating, coming and going, coming and going. And that actually makes it even easier to sustain with thought, because... Because the mind is attending to the breath and is aware of the body sitting, then in those gaps between thoughts, the mind doesn't get distracted. So that's, uh, I find, very useful for mindfulness of different distractions and distracting thoughts, is to have this all-inclusive awareness. Instead of trying just to know the thought itself, feel the whole body, and then have a sense of not just the body, but the... It's as if awareness is filling the whole space of now, body and mind. There's no part of now that isn't infused with awareness. And then it's, then, then it's easy to be continuous without getting caught in the content. And it, the other nice thing that shows is that how the content has a physical response. So we can't really have a thought, even a very neutral thought like, It's a little warm in here. Without there being a visceral reflection of that thought, let alone a more disturbing thought like, what does that person think about me? You know, that would have a very definite sort of counter-contraction in the body. So we just start to learn these things, how thoughts and body, how they're reflecting each other. And if we don't see that, that's what fuels the endless proliferation. Thanks for bringing that up, Mike. That was useful to bring up i think other thoughts or questions that come to mind experiences from your practice you'd like to share with the group Things you've been learning in your life formal practice or informal practice yeah brad And that's a perfect example why that skill of connecting is so... It's like a lifesaver. Because it's what allows us to break unwholesome cycles or patterns in the mind. That skill, we, it's really a kind of confidence. We know we can take the attention and place it in a more safe or skillful place. It doesn't have to be where it is. We can bring the attention back to the present moment, back to the body, back to hearing, back to seeing back to walking. Did you want to say some steps? Yeah, it worked
2: nicely. I was
1: a little troubled, that I was just saying, stop. I was not, but I was happy that I was actually coming back to what well, I was thinking So, just you know, that. Yeah, yeah. And of course, we don't want just that one skill. You know, if all we could do is kind of intercede and stop the mind, but we want to really develop the practice so that the underlying causes for the anxiety are seen and abandoned. And that's why we need that whole trajectory of being able to connect, sustain, experience the joy, the peace, and that deepens the balance, the clarity, which allows for insight, which then makes the whole process easier, and in the process uncovers the subtle um, tendencies that lead to the anxiety that lead to fear and other agitating patterns in our minds. Four minutes left. What else comes to mind? Yeah, I don't know your name. Alice. And are we going to believe our thought, or are we going to believe our direct experience? And it's really a matter of allegiance, because how many times have we experienced, like Alice suggests, our thoughts about who we are, or what's happening, or what's good or bad, really causing a lot of tightness, when the moment before, we were feeling relatively free. And uh, it's just interesting how generally our allegiance is to our thoughts. But when we have this capacity to connect with the present moment and sustain, then we can interrupt that addiction, you know, to believing our thoughts, basically. Thanks so much, Alice, for sharing that. Yeah. Owen. Um, I was, uh, I just had my spring break, and I was down in the southern United States,
0: and I was I was down there rock climbing, and it was really rainy, so I couldn't do anything. It was also cold, and I was by myself. And um, I just had this experience of like having to be by myself with absolutely nothing to do. treat, and it's, almost, it's kind of different, because even though you have nothing to do but practice, you still feel like you're part of this community that's doing the same thing that's structured in a way. Yeah. But, um, it was really neat, um, to watch how, like, dandy my mind got in a way, before I
2: just gave up. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> <laughs> there was
0: definitely things that I could have done to, like, distract myself or go somewhere else, um, but Yeah. yeah
1: yeah and how the mind will frighten itself like really create a monster out of that empty space the kind of open space of that experience that you described i really recommend i mean not that you have to do something quite as extreme as what owen just did but just to set aside uh, half a day where you you're not even going like you said it's Even going on a half-day retreat, which is great, by the way, or a day-long retreat or a residential retreat, totally recommend them, strongly recommend them. But on top of that, that encouragement to go on structured retreats, to set aside a time where you're not going to be cleaning, you're not going to be working on your to-do list, you're not even going to be meditating. You're just going to be being. You know, you've got a couple hours, you have a couch, but you don't, like, have to stay in the couch. You could walk to the window and look out the window, You could walk outside, but you're just being, and noticing, like Owen suggests, what that triggers in the mind. Like, why is the mind afraid of what's unformed? Like, not engaging activities that reinforce stories about who we are, or what's important, or what I don't care about and uh, really looking at those monsters that the mind creates, that you're stagnating, you know. If you get to like this, you will never do anything again in your life. Or whatever it is. Because each time the mind actually looks at those monsters that the mind created, it, it it's learning a reflective movement that is so essential, where the mind, the attention has a way of looking at whatever the mind projects. We really have to see that ability or learn that ability to look at whatever the mind projects and see it's not self. Like that monster is not self because it's something being known. How could it be self? It's just something being known. Oh, that fear is not self. That's just something being known. Oh, that idea is not self. That's just something being known. And over and over, it's like we're popping little bubbles. Either we have a choice to inhabit it and be really frightened and then get in the car, you know, hike out five miles, get in the car, drive 15 hours home <laughs> or get where there's cell, co- uh, cell phone coverage and call a partner or, you know, whatever, where they nearest near a store where chocolate cake is or, you know, all the things that we might do and have done in those situations. <laughs> it would be interesting, actually, if we had the time to hear all the stories of people, whether you did it intentionally like Owen or just ended up in a place where nothing was happening and, like, how neurotic the mind got. It's amazing how neurotic the mind gets. A funny story I often tell is a good friend of mine who, unfortunately, has left and moved to California, but he's one of my meditation buddies and used to teach at Common Ground in the early years, in the early 90s with me. Um, But during one nine-day retreat, I think, he got in one of those states, you know, where his mind just didn't like the open space. And somehow, I mean, this seems so silly to say it this way, he was a good practitioner, His mind was convinced he had to figure out the top 20 movies of all time in the correct order.
2: And I think I drove back
1: with him on that retreat, and he knew each one, and he had reasons why this was 18 and not 17. And and now that took more than a few minutes. I wonder how many days the mind could be convinced that this was the important thing to do instead of just being in the relative, relatively simple space of being on retreat. Sitting, walking, eating, pooping, showering, and sleeping, basically, because you're not talking, you're not reading. It's a little bit like being out in the wilderness, you know. Or we need to leave it here. It's 8.30. We'll just take a few seconds, let go of the words, just enough time to take a breath together, appreciate the silence, appreciate being here together, of course so many beings interested in this process of waking up, so grateful for the lineage of women and men who have done the practice before us, we are the grateful recipients of their wisdom, their compassion that they've passed on generation by generation. And now it's our turn to cultivate the practice of mindfulness and to model wisdom and compassion and to benefit all beings, ourselves, and all those to come. So may this be so. Thanks so much, everyone, for coming.
0: Thank you for listening.